Chapter 32, Part 2 of The Commentaries on the Laws of England, Book 2, by William Blackstone. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roy Haynes. Of Title by Testament and Administration, Part 2. Let us next, thirdly, consider what this last will and testament is, which almost every one is thus at liberty to make, or the nature and incidence of a testament. Testaments, both Justinian and Sir Edward Coke, agree to be so called, because they are testatio mentis, an edamon, which seems to favor too much of the conceit, it being plainly a substantive derived from the verb testari, in a like manner as juramentum, incrementum, and others from other verbs. The definition of the old Roman lawyers is much better than their etymology. Valuntas nostra ustas sententia de eo, quod quis postmortem suam fieri velit, which may thus be rendered into English, the legal declaration of a man's intentions which he wills to be performed after his death. It is called sententia, to denote the circumspection and prudence with which it was supposed to be made. It is voluntatis nostrae sententia, because its efficacy depends on declaring the testator's intention, whence in England it is emphatically styled his will. It is justa sententia, that is, drawn, attested, and published with all due solemnities and forms of law. It is de eo, quod quis post mortem suam fieri velet, because the testament is of no force till after the death of the testator. These testaments are divided into two sorts, written and verbal or nuncipative, of which the former is committed to writing, the latter depends merely on oral evidence, being declared by the testator in extremis before a sufficient number of witnesses and afterwards reduced to writing. A codicil, codicillus, a little book or writing, is a supplement to a will, or an addition made by the testator and annexed to and to be taken as part of a testament, being for its explanation or alteration or to make some addition to, or else some subtraction from, the former dispositions of the testator. This may also either be written or nuncipative. But, as nuncipative wills and codicils, which were formerly more in use than at present, when the art of writing is become more universal, are liable to great impositions, and may occasion many perjuries, the Statute of Frauds 29 Charles II C3 enacts, 1. That no written will shall be revoked or altered by a subsequent nuncipative one, except the same be in the lifetime of the testator, reduced to writing and read over to him and approved, and unless the same be proved to have been so done by the oaths of three witnesses at the least, who, by Statute 4 and 5 and C16, must be such as are admissible upon trials at common law. 2. 
that no nuncupative will shall in any wise be good where the estate bequeathed exceeds thirty pounds, unless proved by three such witnesses present at the making thereof, the Roman law requiring seven, and unless they, or some of them, were specially required to bear witness thereto by the testator himself, and unless it was made in his last sickness, in his own habitation or dwelling house, or where he had been previously resident ten days at the least, except he be surprised with sickness on a journey or from home, and dies without returning to his dwelling. 3. That no nuncupative will shall be proved by the witnesses after six months from the making, unless it were put in writing within six days. Nor shall it be proved till fourteen days after the death of the testator, nor till process has first issued a call to the widow or next of kin to contest it if they think proper. Thus has the legislature provided against any frauds in setting up nuncupative wills by so numerous a train of requisites that the thing itself is fallen into disuse, and hardly ever heard of but in the only instance where favor ought to be shown to it, when the testator is surprised by a sudden and violent sickness. The testamentary words must be spoken with an intent to bequeath, not any loose idle discourse in his illness, for he must require the bystanders to bear witness of such his intention. The will must be made at home, or among his family and friends, unless by unavoidable accident, to prevent impositions from strangers. It must be in his last sickness, for if he recovers, he may alter his dispositions and has time to make a written will. It must not be proved at too long a distance from the testator's death, lest the words should escape the memory of the witnesses, nor, yet too hastily and without notice, lest the family of the testator should be put to inconvenience or surprise. As to written wills, they need not any witness of their publication. I speak not here of devises of lands, which are entirely another thing, a conveyance by statute unknown to the feudal or common law, and not under the same jurisdiction as personal testaments, but a testament of chattels written in the testator's own hand, though it has neither his name nor seal to it, nor witnesses present at its publication, is good, provided sufficient proof can be had that it is his handwriting and though written in another man's hand, and never signed by the testator, yet, if proved to be according to his instructions and approved by him, it hath been held a good testament of the personal estate. Yet it is the safer and more prudent way, and leaves less in the breast of the ecclesiastical judge, if it be signed or sealed by the testator, and published in the presence of witnesses, which last was always required in the time of Bracton, or, rather, he in this respect has implicitly copied the rule of the civil law. No testament is of any effect till after the death of the testator. Nam omne testamentum morte consumatum est, et volenta testatoris est ambulatoria usque ad mortem, and therefore, if there be many testaments, the last overthrows all the former, but the republication of a former will revokes one of a latter date and establishes the first again. 
Hence it follows that testaments may be avoided three ways. 1. If made by a person laboring under any of the incapacities before mentioned. 2. By making another testament of a later date. And 3. By cancelling or revoking it. For though I make a last will and testament irrevocable in the strongest words, yet I am at liberty to revoke it, because my own act or words cannot alter the disposition of law, so as to make that irrevocable which is in its own nature revocable. For this, saith Lord Bacon, would be for a man to deprive himself of that which of all other things is most incident to the human condition and that is alteration or repentance. It hath also been held that without an express revocation, if a man who hath made his will afterwards marries and hath a child, this is a presumptive or implied revocation of his former will, which he made in his state of celibacy. The Romans were also wont to set aside testaments as being inofficiosa, deficient in a natural duty, if they disinherited or totally passed by without assigning a true and sufficient reason any of the children of the testator. But if the child had any legacy, though ever so small, it was a proof that the testator had not lost his memory or his reason, which otherwise the law presumed, but was then supposed to have acted thus for some substantial cause. And in such case, no querela inefficiosi testamenti was allowed. Hence probably has arisen that groundless vulgar error of the necessity of leaving the heir a shilling or some other express legacy in order to disinherit him effectually, whereas the law of England makes no such wild suppositions of forgetfulness or insanity, and therefore, though the heir or next of kin be totally omitted, it admits no querela inefficiosi to set aside such a testament. We are next to consider, fourthly, what is an executor and what is an administrator and how they are both to be appointed. An executor is he to whom another man commits by will the execution of that his last will and testament. And all persons are capable of being executors that are capable of making wills and many others besides, as femme coverts and infants, nay, even infants unborn, or in ventre samere, may be made executors. But no infant can act as such till the age of seventeen years, till which time administration must be granted to some other durante minore aetate, in like manner as it may be granted durante absentia or pedente lite, when the executor is out of the realm or when a suit is commenced in the ecclesiastical court touching the validity of the will. This appointment of an executor is essential to the making of a will, and it may be performed either by express words or such as strongly imply the same. But if the testator makes his will without naming any executors, or if he names incapable persons, or if the executor's name refused to act, in any of these cases, the ordinary must grant administration cum testamento anexo to some other person, and then the duty of the administrator, as also when he is constituted only durante minore aetate, etc., of another, is very little different from that of an executor. 
and this was law so early as the reign of Henry II, when Glanville informs us that Testamente executores est dedement e quos testator ad hac elegerit, et quibus custom ipse commiserit, si vero testator nullos ad hac nominaverit, possunt propinque et consanguine ipsius defuncti ad id faciendum se ingerere. But if the deceased died totally intestate without making either will or executors, then general letters of administration must be granted by the ordinary to such administrator as the statutes of Edward III and Henry VIII before mentioned direct. In consequence of which we may observe, one, that the ordinary is compelable to grant administration of the goods and chattels of the wife to the husband or his representatives, and of the husband's effects to the widow or next of kin but he may grant it to either or both at his discretion. 2. That among the kindred, those are to be preferred that are nearest in degree to the intestate, but of persons in equal degree, the ordinary may take which he pleases. 3. That this nearness or propinquity of degree shall be reckoned according to the computation of the civilians, and not of the canonists, which the law of England adopts in the descent of real estates, because in the civil computation the intestate himself is the terminus a quo, the several degrees are numbered, and not the common ancestor according to the rule of the canonists. And therefore, in the first place, the children, or, on failure of children, the parents of the deceased, are entitled to the administration, both which are indeed in the first degree, but with us the children are allowed the preference. Then follow brothers, grandfathers, uncles, or nephews, and the females of each class respectively, and lastly cousins. 4. The half-blood is admitted to the administration as well as the whole, for they are of the kindred of the intestate, and only excluded from inheritances of land upon feudal reasons. Therefore, the brother of the half-blood shall exclude the uncle of the whole-blood, and the ordinary may grant administration to the sister of the half, or the brother of the whole-blood, at his own discretion. 5. If none of the kindred will take out administration, a creditor may, by custom, do it. 6. If the executor refuses or dies intestate, the administration may be granted to the residuary legatee in exclusion of the next of kin. And lastly, the ordinary may, in defect of all of these, commit administration, as he might have done before the statute Edward III, to such discreet person as he approves of, or may grant him letters ad collegendum bona defuncti, which neither make him executor nor administrator his only business being to keep the goods in his safe custody and to do other acts for the benefit of such as are entitled to the property of the deceased. If a bastard who has no kindred, being nullius filius, or anyone else that has no kindred, dies intestate without a wife or child, it hath been formally held that the ordinary might seize his goods and dispose of them in pios usos. But the usual course now is for someone to procure letters patent or other authority from the king, and then the ordinary course grants administration to such appointee of the crown. 
The interest vested in an executor by the will of the deceased may be continued and kept alive by the will of the same executor, so that the executor of A's executor is to all intents and purposes the executor and representative of A himself, but the executor of A's administrator or the administrator of A's executor is not the representative of A. For the power of an executor is founded upon the special confidence and actual appointment of the deceased, and such executor is therefore allowed to transmit that power to another in whom he has equal confidence. But the administrator of A is merely the officer of the ordinary, prescribed to him by act of parliament, in whom the deceased has reposed no trust at all, and therefore, on the death of that officer, it results back to the ordinary to appoint another. And, with regard to the administrator of A's executor, he has clearly no privity or relation to A, being only commissioned to administer the effects of the intestate executor and not the original testator. Wherefore, in both these cases, and whenever the course of representation from executor to executor is interrupted by any one administration, it is necessary for the ordinary to commit administration afresh of the goods of the deceased not administered by the former executor or administrator. And this administrator, de bonus non, is the only legal representative of the deceased in matters of personal property. But he may, as well as the original administrator, have only a limited or special administration committed to his care, viz., of certain specific effects, such as a term of years and the like, the rest being committed to others. Having thus shown what is and who may be an executor or administrator, I proceed now, fifthly and lastly, to inquire into some few of the principal points of their office and duty. These, in general, are very much the same in both executors and administrators, excepting, first, that the executor is bound to perform a will, which an administrator is not, unless where a testament is annexed to his administration, and then he differs still less from an executor, and, secondly, that an executor may do many acts before he proves the will, but an administrator may do nothing till letters of administration are issued, for the former derives his power from the will and not from the probate, the latter owes his entirely to the appointment of the ordinary. If a stranger takes upon him to act as executor, without any just authority, as by intermeddling with the goods of the deceased and many other transactions, he is called in law an executor of his own wrong, de son tort, and is liable to all the trouble of an executorship without any of the profits or advantages but merely doing acts of necessity or humanity, as locking up the goods or burying the corpse of the deceased, will not amount to such intermeddling as will charge a man as executor of his own wrong. Such a one cannot bring an action himself in right of the deceased, but actions may be brought against him. And in all actions by creditors against such an officious intruder, he shall be named an executor generally. For the most obvious conclusion which strangers can form from his conduct is that he hath a will of the deceased wherein he is named executor, but hath not yet taken probate thereof. 
He is chargeable with the debts of the deceased so far as assets come into his hands, and, as against creditors in general, shall be allowed all payments made to any other creditor in the same or superior degree, himself only accepted. And though, as against the rightful executor or administrator, he cannot plead such payment, yet it shall be allowed him in mitigation of damages, unless perhaps upon a deficiency of assets whereby the rightful executor may be prevented from satisfying his own debt. But let us now see what are the power and duty of a rightful executor or administrator. 1. He must bury the deceased in a manner suitable to the estate which he leaves behind him. Necessary funeral expenses are allowed, previous to all other debts and charges. But if the executor or administrator be extravagant, it is a species of devastation or waste of the substance of the deceased, and shall only be prejudicial to himself and not to the creditors or legatees of the deceased. 2. The executor or administrator, durante menore etate, or durante absentia, or com testamento anexo, must prove the will of the deceased, which is done either in common form, which is only upon his own oath before the ordinary or his surrogate, or per testis, in more solemn form of law, in case the validity of the will be disputed. When the will is so proved, the original must be deposited in the registry of the ordinary, and a copy thereof in parchment is made out under the seal of the ordinary and delivered to the executor or administrator, together with a certificate of its having been proved before him, all which together is usually styled the probate. In defect of any will, the person entitled to be administrator must also, at this period, take out letters of administration under the seal of the ordinary, whereby an executorial power to collect and administer, that is, dispose of the goods of the deceased, is vested in him. And he must, by statute 22 and 23, Charles II, C. 10, enter into a bond with sureties faithfully to execute his trust. If all the goods of the deceased lie within the same jurisdiction, a probate before the ordinary or an administration granted by him are the only proper ones. But if the deceased had bona notabilia or chattels to the value of a hundred shillings in two distinct dioceses or jurisdictions, then the will must be proved or administration taken out before the metropolitan of the province by way of special prerogative. Whence the court where the validity of such wills is tried and the office where they are registered are called the prerogative court and the prerogative office of the provinces of Canterbury and York. Linwood, who flourished in the beginning of the 15th century and was official to Archbishop Cicelli, interprets these hundred shillings to signify salidas legales, of which he tells us 72 amounted to a pound of gold which in his time was valued at 50 nobles, or 16 pounds, 13 shillings, 4 pence. He therefore computes that the hundred shillings which constituted bona notabilia were then equal in current money to 23 pounds, 3 shillings, and 1 quarter pence. This will account for what is said in our ancient books, 
that bona notabilia in the Diocese of London, and indeed everywhere else, were of the value of ten pounds by composition. For, if we pursue the calculations of Linwood to their full extent, and consider that a pound of gold is now almost equal in value to a hundred and fifty nobles, we shall extend the present amount of bona notabilia to nearly seventy pounds. But the makers of the canons of 1603 understood this ancient rule to be meant of the shillings current in the reign of James I, and have therefore directed that five pounds shall for the future be the standard of bona notabilia, so as to make the probate fall within the archiepiscopal prerogative. Which prerogative, properly understood, is grounded upon this reasonable foundation, that as bishops were themselves originally the administrators to all intestates in their own diocese, and as the present administrators are in effect no other than their officers or substitutes, it was impossible for the bishops or those who acted under them to collect any goods of the deceased other than such as lay within their own diocese, beyond which their episcopal authority extends not. But it would be extremely troublesome if as many administrations were to be granted as there are dioceses within the deceased had bona notabilia. Besides the uncertainty which creditors and legatees would be at in case different administrators were appointed to ascertain the fund out of which their demands are to be paid. A prerogative is therefore very prudently vested in the metropolitan of each province to make, in such cases, one administration serve for all. This accounts very satisfactorily for the reason of taking out administration to intestates that have large and diffusive property in the prerogative court. And the probate of wills naturally follows, as was before observed, the power of granting administrations in order to satisfy the ordinary, that the deceased has, in a legal manner, by appointing his own executor, excluded him and his officers from the privilege of administrating the effects. End of chapter 32, part 2